0: Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore Dub. This week on the IFI podcast, we have a music documentary special, or to be more specific, a music documentary double bill, which focuses on the female pioneers of both punk and electronic music. Later on the show, I'll be speaking to Lisa Rovner, director of the brilliant Sisters with Transistors, a new film on IFI at Home to coincide with International Women's Day. But first, Celeste Bell and Paul Singh's new documentary, Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché, is available to rent from today on IFI at Home. As the title suggests, the film focuses on polystyrene, songwriter and lead singer with British punk band X-Ray Spex. The film is not only a fascinating film of a pop punk legend, but a very personal and intimate look at a mother-daughter relationship. I'm delighted that the film's co-director and Polystyrene's daughter, Celeste Bell, joins me now. Celeste, welcome to the IFI podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Celeste, it's coming up on the 10th anniversary of your mum's passing, and I was wondering, was that the catalyst behind the making of the documentary? Or if not, what was the driving force behind getting it made now?
1: The project actually started five years ago, uh, almost, come, we're in the fifth year now. And the catalyst was really my, some years after my mother passed away when I was going through her archive and I was also in possession of her diary entries. And the initial project was actually a book um, which came out a couple of years ago. That's, that's called Glow that I co-wrote with Zoe Howe. And, um, and then the film sort of went, kind of developed from the book and we decided to expand the project and 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 make a film because there were elements of the story that we felt would you know only a film could really do do justice. I'm really
0: fascinated by your relationship with Polystyrene and Marion Elliott. You mentioned in the documentary that your mum had left her punk life behind before you were born. So I was just wondering, did you always feel sort of disconnected from that polystyrene identity or or what was your relationship with it?
1: Yes, I, I, you know, I knew my mum as polystyrene, um, because, you know, people kind of would come up to her in the street and things like that. But yeah, I didn't really, you know, think too much of it. My, my mum was my mum. And um, those two sort of people were very separate. Um, And then obviously, after she passed away, I'm an only child, so I was left to sort of manage her estate, and um, my relationship with polystyrene sort of became quite important, an important one. And I guess, yeah, making this film has helped me to really reconnect with with polystyrene. You know, someone who was uh, it was like a a character my mum created before I was born.
0: Mm. And there's a very kind of frank admission I suppose at the start where, where you talk about you know you've been left with this legacy and you've left with this archive and there's kind of a thanks mum kind of moment. What were your feelings when you kind of started digging into that archive?
1: It was just very difficult dealing with my mother's death um, so that was you know something I was focused on sort of grief and, and getting over that and not really you know it took me a while to kind of accept the the responsibility of sort of uh, preserving her legacy and also just learning the ropes because it was a, a whole a new area that I, I didn't have experience in in terms of you know music law and rights and copyright and royalties and publishing and all of this kind of thing so you know it was a big learning curve and one that I feel that I've got under control now and I think that the best thing about the book and the film project with that some, you know, this um, managing the estate is quite administrative and these projects are creative. So they it allowed me to do, you know, express myself also creatively through um, the wider sort of responsibility of, of managing my mum's estate, artistic estate.
0: The, um, the, the footage in the film is, is, is really amazing. The, the archive footage that you've pulled together is terrific. And so much of it, um, another film that we have on the site is um, Rubika Shah's White Riot, which was released earlier in the year, which focuses on the, the Rock Against Racism documentary. But some of the most striking footage is that early interview footage. And Polly, she kind of come across as a little bit evasive or very shy. But I suppose she was only 19. She was so young when that attention kind of first started for her
1: she was very young and also you know being being interviewed in in these kind of various settings it wasn't necessarily it was nothing she was used to previously and she had no training and didn't really know what to expect and i think for 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 most people it can be very awkward and uncomfortable and that comes across i think in those early in those early interviews you know it took her a while to sort of get used to to how you know how to manage the press, and that was sort of an ongoing struggle. Let's say.
0: Yeah, and and funny enough, there's there's an interview on a boat where one of the interviewers asks her about her relationship with Falcon Stewart, and then this idea of you know living with the patriarchy. And even though she's very young, she was incredible. She knew exactly what he was getting at, and knew exactly how to evade it.
1: You know, it was another one of those very awkward it was a very sexist interview you know where sort of digging into her personal life not something that you know male artists male performers necessarily had to deal with or have to deal with and women always have to deal with that so you can see in the interview you can see that she's annoyed um, but she deals with it you know really well
0: just talking about that whole atmosphere what you notice about the film a lot is that she's surrounded by men that it's a very male arena. It's a very male atmosphere. It's a very toxic atmosphere. I suppose that the one instant that that sticks out is that Sid vicious moment where he locks her in the cupboard, and it's kind of it's framed as a oh you know she's one of the boys, but like that's not what that was really about.
1: Exactly, exactly that. Yeah, that moment is really a really tough moment. Um, it's a really, I think it has a lot of impact when you see it because you understand that she. Uh, didn't feel that she got the respect that she deserved from her peers and that had um uh, a real a huge negative impact on her mental health
0: and that you have the, the, that footage as well the, the incredible concert footage where she's on the stage and she suddenly there's a there's an invasion and it's all just men that are like yeah. pulling and grabbing at her and it's like just that that dichotomy is so striking
1: yeah, and I think that's the, the other thing, is that punk was very male at the time, so it wasn't just, you know, the performers, it was also the, the crowds, and um, the crowds were, could be very hostile, and those gigs were, you know, it was like going out to battle every night, and uh, there, were no, there was no respect of personal boundaries either so it was it was really tough um, you had to have a lot of um, strength and courage which my mum did but um, obviously it did get to her eventually.
0: Um, identity is a word that hovers over the whole film not least because it's the title of an x-ray spec song but it felt like it was something that your mum battled with kind of her, her whole life can you tell us a little bit about how that is kind of brought through in the film?
1: Yeah so my mother um, was a mixed race uh, of mixed heritage um, English and Somali and you know she it took her a long time to come to terms with her own sense of identity and during that process you know as she was coming to terms with it she was also very much aware of how society was dealing with it and how society treated people of mixed heritage at the time and so she she often struggled herself with you know knowing how to identify herself and you know Having this feeling that she didn't really belong to any particular identity or any particular um, ethnicity or group um, made her feel like an outsider uh, when she was growing up, and and that I think that feeling stayed with her throughout her life.
0: And also, I suppose in the film you have that that difference between identity and then image, because I just wonder if that if that feeling of displacement goes through and how she kind of outwardly portrayed herself I think one of the really striking quotes is Pauline Black who says that she it would never have occurred to her that Polly was a punk which is kind of and is is there that feeling that kind of Polly fell between any number of stools that because her identity wasn't quite you know was was not as fixed as everybody else's that maybe that came through in her image as well?
1: Exactly that yes I think it in a way it helped my mum to sort of elevate herself and to really stand out um and be true to herself because she was always on an outsider didn't really fit in and that also applied to punk music you know she was very much doing her own thing within that so it enabled her to forge her own sort of independent and unique path
0: there's a couple of of, of pivotal moments um in the documentary i just want to have, have a quick chat about it. the first is being the trip to new york when she travelled over at X-ray Specs, which when they had a residency in CBGB, it was a, a trip that had a huge potential for them, but it was actually devastating, kind of and very destabilising for Polly. Can you tell us a little bit a little bit about what happened in in New York?
1: Yes, New York was a very overwhelming experience for my mum. It was really exciting, of course, because she'd always wanted to go to the to the US, and CBGB's was a it already had a kind of legendary status um, as sort of you know New York was kind of the birthplace of punk and so it meant a lot for my mum to go there and for the band to have a residency and they played uh, twice a day so that in itself it was very um it was very hard because it was Um, exhausting I don't think they'd ever played that much and also there was no sort of respite because you know afterwards there would be parties and there'll be socializing and it was just uh, very uh, intense and heavy and the whole New York scene was a lot darker let's say than the the UK scene in many ways with drug taking etc and also New York itself was in quite a state in the in the late 70s it was you know there was a a lot of it was very run down very poor city many social issues and so it was yeah it was it was kind of not what my mum had expected um in many ways She was also really confronted with sort of American style consumerism and and capitalism which were themes that she'd been exploring in her writing but then seeing them for herself was kind of mind-blowing so yeah the whole New York experience was pivotal in terms of my mum's sort of the kind of level of success that she reached and also it was probably a turning point where she realised that you know it wasn't necessarily what she wanted to be doing forever.
0: And the other moment that is, is, is very key as well is, um, the incident at John Lydon's house, um, where she's, she's hanging out some evening and then she disappears for half an hour and she comes back and she's, and she's shaved her head. And I'm just, this obviously like, it was a kind of a flag in relation to her issues with her mental health and what, and what was going on there. And was this a kind of a a way for her to regain control?
1: Yes, I do think, um, You know, shaving her head was like a a political statement and it was about in many ways regaining control, as you said. Um, It was also a cry for help um, at a very difficult time for her where her mental health was uh, under a lot of pressure and um, she was in quite a fragile state as well. So you can see it as, you know, it's a symbolic act of strength, but it's also showing weakness there, both things. Um, there's a, there's
0: a very interesting section, um, as well. I we don't give too much, uh, too much away where Polly and yourself moved to the Hare Krishna, um, house in the countryside. That was a, a kind of a, a big change for her, but it was also a hugely strained experience for yourself. So tell us a little bit about that period and, cause you, you didn't stay there for very long.
1: I didn't know well you know uh, it was a few years so it was quite a big chunk of my childhood about 4 years actually that I lived in the in the manor so yeah it was it was you know very very important um early experience for me and in many ways it was quite idyllic that ex- that existence uh it was a beautiful place and um, we were really sheltered from the you know the less nice aspects of the world outside and uh, in in that sense it was a sanctuary from my mum and and that's why she kind of retreated into that world which was um, so so different to the world that she'd grown up in and also to the the music industry and all the stresses and strains of that and um, and yeah for me it was um, a wonderful childhood but obviously you know there are always downsides to everything. So um, it wasn't exactly paradise, but it was pretty close to it.
0: And, And what was your, don't say reintegration, but what was it like after you had kind of moved from there back to more mainstream society? Was that a difficult change for you?
1: Yes of course it was like a a big culture shock because in the Hare Krishna temple we were living in a rural community very tight-knit small community you knew everyone Um, it was a rural community and it was like a a village let's say and then going into you know 21st century or the end of the 20th century it would have been uh, London urban London it, it couldn't it was night and day, the contrast. So, yeah, a lot of big, big culture shock and a, a lot to get used to.
0: Uh, one of the, the really striking things that Polly says in the documentary is that she had the worst of both worlds, that she was famous and she was also broke. And I thought what was really interesting was the footage from the Roundhouse gig in 2008 had a really young audience, the gig. And I just wonder, you know, have the band found that younger crowd through streaming services and archive footage? Has that kind
1: of turned around a little bit? Uh, X-Respects always had quite a young fan base because, you know, the the parents, you know, they love the music so much. They tend to share it with their kids, and and um, the kids just instantly love X-Ray Specs and love my mum's music because it was so youthful. I think so. I think my mum was always able to with her music. She kind of, she had the always had, you know, the fan base that was around her age and then much younger. Um, but yes, I think you're right. During I think the early 2000s was when um, a lot of people who who didn't have that kind of entry point to to know X respects like through their parents, they discovered her, they discovered the band, and they discovered my mum just through sort of online searches and and YouTube and and these kinds of things. So it, yeah, definitely, you know, she got she got a whole new fan base thanks to the the internet.
0: Speaking of fans, and I'm, I'm always kind of curious how big of an X-ray Specs fan you are yourself. Cause I, I would, I would imagine there's always a kind of a certain expectation or a pressure for you to be, you know, the biggest fan, but it may not be your type of music at all. So I was just wondering about that. If you are a big X-ray Specs fan or is it kind of like, oh, you know, I listen to them, but it's not really my bag.
1: No, I love X-Respects and I I would say I'm definitely a huge X-Respects fan. I'm not like a, a, a massive punk fan or even rock fan. So it's, it's not like my favourite genre. But I think, you know, X-Respects for me, and obviously I'm biased, but I think it transcends like genres. So yeah. I think you don't have to be a punk fan to, to enjoy the music. You don't have to even be a rock fan because we're talking about very catchy, actually Great pop songs, very good hooks and melodies, very catchy. So I think um, really anyone can like extraspect um, respect Just if you like music, you'll like them. And if you like good lyrics.
0: Given that this is the Irish Film Institute podcast, I do have to ask about Ruth Nega, who does the voice for Polystyrene on the diary entries and the and the interviews. Tell us a little bit about how she got involved in the project and, and how she came on board.
1: Yeah, so I, I met her, you know, just a, a few years ago. Uh, by chance, and I discovered that she was a big fan of my mum's, and that she, you know, found my mum an inspirational character figure. And so, I just thought it would be great to ask her to do my mum's voice in the film because I was originally, you know, we were thinking that I would do it. I would read my mum's diary entries, but as you already hear my voice a lot throughout the film, it would have been quite confusing. So having an, an actor do that um, made a lot of sense. And, and Ruth was the first person to come to mind. And I'm just so grateful that she said yes.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of uncanny, the, the the voice.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, she really nailed it 100%. She did such a great job. She, I mean, she imitated my mum much better than I could. <laughs>
0: Um, well, as I said, it's a it's a fantastic documentary, and it's available uh, to rent now on iFi at home. Celeste Bell, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you, thank you so much, thank you, Stephen.
0: also released on iFi at home today is Lisa Rovner's new film Sisters with Transistors which looks at the incredible and relatively unknown female pioneers of electronic music from Clara Rockmore to Daphne Oram and from Delia Derbyshire to Suzanne Chiani the film is a wonderful and often very moving film about the work of composers who not only possessed virtuoso musical talent but were also respected scientists and mathematicians and I'm delighted that director Lisa Rovner joins me now on the iFi podcast Lisa thanks so much for being here
2: Thank you for having me
0: Lisa, this is your first feature documentary. What was there in particular about the subject that compelled you to make a film about it?
2: The subject touches on everything I'm interested in. Avant-garde music, art, film, history, politics, philosophy, feminism, archive, literally everything I'm interested in. But beyond me and my personal interests, I think the The reason that I was compelled to make this documentary was really because I really felt like it would inspire and have a really positive effect on the world, not only for women who work in electronic music, but literally for all creative people, for all people um, who felt marginalized, who felt like they haven't been heard, who felt left out of history. You know, this is a film about people breaking boundaries in radical and playful ways and these are stories that are full of courage and hope and contagious eccentricity.
0: It, it's really striking that quote at, at the start from Laurie Anderson, where she says, you know, the history of women in music is silence.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the history of women in general is is, yeah, a history of silence or it's a story of silence. Um, women's stories have not been. For the most part, have not been told. So it was a really, it was really exciting to find, uh, to find out that there were women working in, in that were pioneering early electronic music. And yeah, I, I was um, compelled as soon as I discovered them. I was compelled to learn more about them, and then eventually realized just that there was great archive and that it would just make a brilliant film.
0: In in relation to the archive, as you say, it, it contains some amazing footage. How long did it take to pull the materials together?
2: So it, it it was a really long and slow and drawn out process. You know, this was my first, first feature length film. And I had originally thought, oh, I'll just hire an archivist. And then uh, we got a little bit of funding from the BFI. So we thought, okay, we'll hire the archivist. And the archivist after, you know, two weeks of work came back with very little. So I realized it was going to be, if I was going to do this in the right way, it was going to take a long time. So I ended up um, doing most of the archive work myself and yeah it was it was like i said i i i was working on this film for a number of years before it all came together but i think one of the biggest challenges uh, in working with archives was, was figuring out how we were going to pay for it. I think most people don't realize it's actually something that we're still trying to work out how to pay for the licensing. And, you know, it really seems criminal to me to to think about how much of our pass is being withheld from the public simply because it's too expensive for filmmakers to license. I, I really feel there was a lot of stuff that we ended up not being able to use just just because, um, yeah, we, we couldn't pay for it all. So, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And as, and as the iFi is the home to the IFI Irish film archive so so we're we're well familiar with those kind of materials. but I suppose what people don't realize is there is just so much and not to be boring about it, there's just so much admin. And so much red tape and so much clearance to do that you know the, the the footage is it's it's wonderful and it's and it's so vibrant but there's so much work that goes on behind it as well.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just the digitization itself is 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 a big work. So yeah, I I totally understand why there are some costs, but it is I think that it is it is a shame that it is so expensive because it, it really does limit. You know, I think a lot of documentaries are use talking heads. People don't realize a lot of people don't really like talking heads. But the reality is it's it's sometimes the only thing you can actually afford to do um, because archive is so expensive.
0: You mentioned there that a lot of the footage is not accessible to the public and, and, and cost is part of that. But I would imagine that there's also a lack of archive material as well. And I just wonder how much of what is contained or who is featured in the film was actually based on materials that were available. Were there other musicians that you wanted to feature but that you just couldn't because there was no substantial footage of them?
2: Yes, absolutely. So you know, one of the one of the characters in the film, Bibi Behrend, there's very very little existing footage of her. So that was a real challenge to figure out how were we going to tell her story with so little images of her. So a lot of the the fun we had in the edit was trying trying to kind of recreate or illustrate this this oral history. But definitely there were women in, you know, it's super important for people to understand that this film is in no way the definitive history of women in electronic music, that the, that the film really focuses on, on women for whom I could find archive, and that there are many others whose music and stories are, you know, also deserve attention, films, essays. One of those is Els Marie Pad, who was a Danish composer that I had hoped to include, but the language barrier and the lack of resources made it too difficult to pull off. Um, There's another woman called Pauline Anna Strom, who's just recently passed away, who's a fascinating composer from the 80s. um, And uh, I was really drawn to her story. She was born blind and she, you know, um, taught herself composition intuitively. So just goes to say, but then, you know, I couldn't fit everybody in and I already had Pauline Oliveros and I already had, you know, who was also from the Bay Area. So, yeah, there there were some difficult choices to be made. Um, but what I hope that people walk away with is curiosity and, and desire to keep adding to this history that this is this is not done. This is just the beginning of of the rewriting of this history.
0: Um, anybody who is familiar with the IFI's work will know that um, a couple of years ago we had um, a very special visit from George Orr Martin, um, who was in Dublin for the Worldcon. And as part of his visit, um, we showed a 35mm print, a beautiful 35mm print of Forbidden Planet, which B.B. Barron and her husband did the music for. And I remember seeing the opening credits on the screen, Lisa, and seeing the electronic tonalities and thinking, oh, wow, that's a really quirky way to say music. But actually, there was a very specific reason why it was written like that.
2: Absolutely. Yes. So Hollywood's, the musicians in Hollywood didn't want electronic music to be con- to be called music because they were worried that these machines would take over their jobs. And so, yeah, there was there was a lot of fear around calling electronic music, music.
0: The film is a historical look at the evolution of electronic music and the women who played such a fundamental role in it, but it's not strictly chronological. So can you tell us a little bit about the structure of the documentary and how you approached it in that way?
2: Yes. So I've been thinking so much about storytelling. I studied political science and I've always been very conscious of history with a capital H and her stories and, and, you know, the stories that were told and the stories that were not told and the consequences of that. In storytelling, we long for a hero. We long for a sole genius. And that hero is generally tends to be white and male. And I'm convinced that our reductive storytelling, the way that we tell stories is what led to the erasure of women from history. So when we were making this film in the edit, it became super important to break from that traditional, or in other words, that male form of storytelling with a clear beginning, a clear middle, and a clear end. I wanted the story to weave. I wanted it to draw connections. You know, the subject is so radical in nature that the form just had to reflect that. So we opted for a chronology that weaves a narration that's not all-knowing, multiple heroines whose stories are told subjectively, it was important that to me that the subjects tell their own stories. So even in 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 that way, uh we were moving away the uh, of the traditional doc uh you know documentary format with other people telling the story of of the, of the subject.
0: Um it's striking and you've alluded to it a couple of times already. Um the mention of politics and I think it's very striking, and very interesting how often politics gets mentioned in documentary because none of this music was getting made in isolation but we often think of you know political music as a certain type of music perhaps folk music were you surprised about how big a role politics played in this electronic genre
2: absolutely i think the thing that really surprised me the most was i had i had no idea how tied the origins of electronic music were to war you know both in terms of the instruments themselves obviously being developed um, because of the need for new modes of communication but also in terms of women having access to to electronic music studios mainly radios um due to jobs being vacated by men who had gone to fight in the wars so yeah the politics i mean i studied politics so i'm very interested in in politics in general but yeah i was i was really surprised to learn about just how how big of a role um uh, politics played in 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 this kind of music
0: um, obviously, in a film about music, the, the sound mixing and the sound landscape is is hugely important. How did you go about constructing that or or mapping that out?
2: I think one of the key things for me was that we give view- the viewer time to appreciate the sound, to properly listen and hear it. You know, I really wanted audiences to bathe in sound. I really wanted to to work with sound in the way that three D works with image, to spatialize it, to give it dimension. So we worked with Marta Saloni on the sound design. She's a sound engineer whose practice is greatly inspired by the women in the film. And she really brought a lot of the recordings were mono and she really brought them to life. And I have to say, like, the soundtrack was definitely one of the easiest parts of the puzzle. You know, the material is so rich and exciting. um, And, you know, even though they were all pioneering electronic music in, in completely unique ways, it somehow just all flowed in this like really magical beautiful way
0: one of the things lisa i'm really looking forward to once the pandemic is over and lockdown finishes is seeing the film in a cinema because the sound in a cinema would just be mind-blowing have you seen it in a cinema context yet
2: no and it's heartbreaking because I really think that there is no better place to listen to music than in a cinema. There are no phones. There are no people talking, generally speaking. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I just can't wait for that day when that's possible. All of my uh, physical screenings have been canceled um, due to COVID. But I do think that this film will have a long life. And I do hope that we, um, we can all experience the film in cinema at some point one day.
0: I'm sure we will because it, it, it's a it's a film that's absolutely made to to be heard as loud um, as possible, I think. Lisa, were there any figures that you especially related to in the film more than any others?
2: You know, I don't think that there was one in particular. I think that the fact that they were, you know, all women with agency, that they were truly independent, that their stories were stories of personal liberation, of persistence. I identified with All of them, um, especially as a female filmmaker, it was really something that I, yeah, the the emancipation of of technology, of the fact that I could just pick up a camera and make things, I, I really identify and relate to all of them in different ways. What about you? Is there anybody in there that you particularly related to? I I wouldn't say that
0: there was anybody I particularly identified with. But what I would say is I was kind of just utterly in awe and not to pick anybody out over anybody else. But I was absolutely in awe of Daphne Oram, who seemed to just make something out of nothing. You know, that that whole radiophonic workshop was just a, a mind blowing piece of work. And the fact that she would go into the office or the building at night and gather all the tape recorders together, work through the night and then put them back was just i i was just astounded by it and for me she was kind of you know i know Clara Rockmore um, preceded her but from an innovation point of view and even with her oramics i thought she was just amazing and com- completely underrepresented in in the whole kind of story of music
2: totally yeah
0: Can I ask you, Lisa, about the final scenes of the film, which are deliberately not archive images, but feature three of the musicians in the modern day? And I was just wondering, what made you step outside the archive for those closing shots, and in particular, that very, very uh, moving final image?
2: Yeah, just something that kind of came about quite naturally. It's not something that I necessarily knew I was going to do when I first started making the film, but... Um, it became quite clear that I really wanted to bring the film into the present you know there was the the film kind of ends in in the eighties. I was able to meet and film uh three of the women who are in the who are subjects of the film and 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 yeah, I mean, you know when I was thinking about what I would film of each i mean the Suzanne playing on the boucle just happened quite naturally. We were at her house doing an interview with her, and she's still obviously making music with the boucle, so that just like just happened very naturally with Laurie I knew that she you know um had you know I knew that she was an eco-feminist and I knew that animal life and 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 birds and uh, that she was feeding the birds every day was like part of who she was now and I felt like it was a really symbolic image of seeing this pioneer you know feeding the birds um it just felt very um symbolic and it felt like a, a greater metaphor for the role that these women have now in, in playing in inspiring a younger generation of, of women in electronic music. And then with Ilian, I knew obviously that she start, has started to work with, with acoustic musicians. And I mean, the whole way that she's now working with musicians and, and composing is, is so interesting. And I wish I could have gone into it more, but there was just this opportunity to film this encounter and I had no idea it was going to be so moving. I mean, it was just, um, it was incredible. I mean, the way that she, this is something I couldn't really touch upon in the film, but she, the way that she communicates scores with musicians is, is, is not through paper. It's not through notation. It's through a kind of oral transference. uh, uh, But yeah, it was, it was incredibly moving. And it was also just so interesting to hear just how much, This acoustic music was, you know, sounded, you know, that it was basically possible to that even in her, even in the acoustic performance of her compositions, they still sound so much like her electronic music. And I just, yeah, the, that last scene, I felt super privileged being there. And I just, when I saw it, when I lived it, I just knew that would just, it would just make the most perfect ending to the film.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful way uh, to end, Lisa. What are you working on next? What is what projects have you got lined up?
2: So I am. I'm working on a fiction, which is a bit crazy because you know now I should be trying to make another documentary, but um, another political film, uh, uh more of a personal film about um, my mother, who in 1968 was due to be married and because of the revolution canceled that wedding and ran off to America where she eventually met my dad so it's really the story of May 68 but seen from a personal perspective a lot of what we think of of when we think of May 68 is we think of students in in the city in Paris we think of it as a failed revolution but in my mother's case who was living in rural France it was uh, a moment where everything was possible and to think of it for her, I, I think of it as a success, a successful revolution. So I'm just, I'm writing that and it's, it's very much inspired by archives, by letters, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in exploring um, all kinds of filmmaking, including drama.
0: Amazing. Well hopefully we'll see that uh, at the IFI French Film Festival um, at some point in the future. Um, congratulations again, Lisa, on a on a truly fascinating documentary. Sisters with Transistors is available to rent now until Tuesday, March 9th, with a further release planned later in April. Lisa Ravner, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> That's Robbie, the cook and the 60 gallons of booze taken from Bibi and Louis Barron's soundtrack to Forbidden Planet. That's all from the IFI podcast this week. My thanks to Celeste Bell and Lisa Rovner. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The IFI podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.